This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. My guest in the studio today is Mike Loder, who is finishing up his doctorate at King's College London, where he works on the political history of Soviet Latvia in the 1950s. Welcome to the studio. Thank you very much. It's a delight to be here. You're looking at the rise of the Latvian national communists during this time. So let me start off by asking you, who and what are the Latvian national communists? The national communists in uh, in Latvia, um, well, it derives from a term that became popular in the West uh, for referring to various expressions of communism in post-war Eastern European countries, um, for example, Yugoslavia and Poland. And it implies their divergence from Moscow with an independent approach to the implementation of communism. So in Latvia, we attribute this term to a group of individuals who rose to prominence within the leadership of the Latvian Republic. Um, and so Latvia... A bit of uh, bit of background was sort of reincorporated into the Soviet Union at the end of the war, so 1944, and so this group that emerged, they had known each other for a while uh, in the army, in the Komsomol, that's the um, communist youth organization, and in underground work in independent Latvia. So that's how they sort of had personal relationships with each other in their work, and they sort of found out that they had uh, a common vision about what Latvia should be like. And what's very interesting is they're not bound by age, although they were mostly young, nationality, they weren't necessarily native to Latvia, not all of them even spent the interwar period in Latvia. But like I said, yes, a common vision about how Latvia should be, and almost universally they spoke Latvian. So what was this vision of how Latvia should be? Uh, Well, I'll come to that in just a moment. Um, What we need to look at first is how it all started and how this vision emerged. Okay. So 1953 is the key year. By this time, they were sort of middle-ranking functionaries uh, in the Latvian party, in the in the government. But what really triggered everything, as most things in post-war Soviet history, Stalin died. Ah, oh, yes. And so Stalin's death triggered the power struggle within the Kremlin. And um, Lavrenti Beria, he was the secret police chief at the time. And he tried to gain the support of the Soviet Union's 16 republics, because the Soviet Union was nominally set up federally, by offering to address some of their grievances. And so these grievances included uh, too many Russians working, uh, running the government, the party, the police, etc., etc. And his proposal was to replace them with indigenous party workers and cadres, uh, that's what we call them, and convert official business and the working language of government and the party into the local language. Very popular in the republics. And so... In Latvia, specifically, uh, this led to... Because uh, Beria was uh, the front-runner just after Stalin's death. And this led to a plenum, which is a party meeting, organised by Beria among the inner party, the leaders. And one after another, the Latvians got up to the rostrum and they thundered about, you know, Russian so- uh, chauvinism in Latvia and, you know, uh, how we don't have a proper representation within the party and proper control. It's a, it's a Latvian party in name only. It's run by Russians. And so this was this was unprecedented. And this is really the beginnings of national communism, because the Latvians that got up and said all this were, by and large, future national communists. So finally, I'll say that, of course, Beria lost the struggle to Nikita Khrushchev and he was executed. And the Latvian plenum resolutions, those decisions about changing everything in Latvia, they were shelved. They weren't repealed. They were frozen for the time being. 
So this goes counter to everything that the national communists were working for. So how did they respond to this shelving of their plans? They sort of, uh, it all went on the back burner a little bit. And they began to, uh, you know, they continued to sort of build up piecemeal. And this is where um, we come to the second major year, because uh, uh, I say there are three three crucial years to discuss in this analysis of high politics in Soviet Latvia. And it's 1956 is when things really kick off. So this is where I believe that the National Communists coalesced into a proper faction. Now, uh, I go against the grain here in my work um, by sticking my neck out and saying this. But you see, uh, they had special meetings at one another's houses. Uh, They canvassed for support on important votes in the top uh, decision-making bodies uh, in the Soviet Union, which are the, uh, the Central Committee. And above that, the Bureau. And the Bureau is like the US or the UK cabinets. And so uh, during, say, a meeting of the Bureau, they would order a break and they'd all pop outside for tea, but they'd actually have a chat about it. And then they'd all come back in with a decision and vote and outvote the other members, you see. And in my opinion, if this wasn't a faction in a one party state, I don't know what was. So they started to promote each other up the ladder. And this is very, very crucial, Chris, because they uh, began to help each other into important positions within the leadership. And so it's probably a time to mention their leader. And he was a very charismatic fellow. And his name was Edward Berklavs. He was a charismatic, very brash individual. He used to upset a lot of people uh, with his way of doing things. But, he, you know, he was the one with the most clear vision for Latvia. And this was to protect it from excessive Sovietization and especially Russification. Because they were very worried about it. But they had many members across the spectrum in culture and, and, and in the Komsomol, uh, the youth organisation, in the ministries, in the heads of departments. So think of it from 1956, really spread its tentacles as a faction. So if I can tell you a bit more about Berklavs, he had reached the position of the first secretary of Riga, which was the capital of Latvia. He was the first secretary of the city party committee, which made him uh, effectively the mayor by 1955. And so in 1956, it was the year of Khrushchev's secret speech where he denounced Stalin's crimes to the party, the inner party, and the national communists were invited. And Khrushchev said that he would return the party to Leninism. And uh, he handed out copies of Lenin's Last Testament to all the audience. And Berklavs and co, they took the inspiration for their reforms from this and their own interpretation of Lenin as a defender of the rights of small nations in the USSR. This is, I hope, answering uh, your question about uh, what they wanted. Because you asked, what do the national communists want? Well, in 1956, uh, late 1956, Berklavs began to put his plans into motion. And he was worried about migration, particularly. This is the biggest problem. Uh, Now, it's a touchy subject. So uh, about 12 years after the reincorporation of Latvia into the USSR, half a million Russians had moved to this very small republic of only about 2 million people. You know, they really were making a splash. And so... He created a law in conjunction with his allies in the police and the municipal authorities. It was a residency restriction. So when people arrived to live in a new city in the USSR, you could live anywhere and work anywhere, a bit like the EU. Uh, You had to register with the police. But now Berklavs had the police refuse restrictions. uh, So Riga became a bit like Moscow and Leningrad and now St. Petersburg, where you had to have a permit to live there. And this reduced the flow of migrants from 1,000 to 2,000 a month to practically zero. Mm hmm. And Berklavs and his national communist colleagues, they were worried about the lack of use of the Latvian language. So uh, he also instituted a law whereby all employees in Russia's service sector had to speak both Latvian and Russian. 
But Latvians already knew Russian, you see, because you had to go to university to get a good job. You had to speak Russian. So the Latvians knew Russian, but Russians didn't know Latvian. So the stipulation was these employees had two years to learn conversational level of both languages, or they face losing their jobs. So I think you can imagine, Chris, that this caused absolute uproar among the Russians who came to Latvia largely for a better life, because uh, it was a, a higher standard of living in Latvia. And uh, not only that, the National Communists picked a fight with the military. They tried to take away their summer houses on the seaside uh, of Yermala, the, the, the beach resort, um, and they restrict their privileges in Latvia. They prioritised Latvians over Russians, which was reversing the status quo, in apartment distribution. Uh, there was a housing crisis and you had like families squeezed into tiny apartments and married couples living with their parents for 20 years, this sort of thing. So the National Communist Minister of Culture... Uh, Voldemar's Kalpinch, he struggled to reassert Latvia's cultural heritage during the period, and he had great success. You got banned books from disgraced Latvian authors were approved, and uh, the cultural festivals that Latvia loved so much, the song festivals and operas and theatres and orchestras playing Latvian music, and even their Midsummer Festival, it's their biggest uh, pagan festival uh, of light called Ligo, their most important tradition, he got that back. So he was bringing all this Latvian culture that had been banned under the Soviets, he was getting it reintroduced. So you can probably see that this was very important for them. I can see that it was very important for them. I can also see that this is not going to sit well with Moscow. Yes, you, well, <laughs> you, you, you are absolutely correct. And so even all this they could almost tolerate under the new sort of Khrushchev era spirits and, and reforms. But it really became a problem in 1958. Uh, Kruminch, now Willis Kruminch is also crucial. He's like Berklav's second in command. He became the second secretary of the whole of Latvia, not just Riga, where Berklavs was. And this was very crucial because this position was reserved for a Russian. This was the watchdog of Moscow in every republic, at every level. It was the second secretary was Moscow's eyes. So there was a sensational vote. And you might think, you know, what are you talking about? A vote in the Soviet Union? But yes, there did exist a form of democracy in the USSR, and we call it democratic centralism. And what that really means is just that in the upper echelon of the party, they had nominal votes, which generally weren't really exercised properly. It was just a formal way of giving their opinions. But in this occasion, unprecedentedly, the inner party used it to boot out the Russian and eventually install Kruminch. So this is really going to upset Moscow, I think you'll agree. And Kruminch instituted reforms to increase the number of Latvian cadres in the party and to force business into the Latvian language. So what we're seeing here is, do you remember those 1953 reforms I told you about? Of course. Those are being brought back in now, off the shelf and being instituted. And so he has sort of got the permission to do this. He's in the top, you know, he's in a position of responsibility. And yes, so I told you that the National Communists by this time had their fingers in every pie. Uh, you know, they had the, the editors of the press and all the economic planning organisations were run by them. And finally, um, before we got on to how it all goes wrong, uh, the National Communists wanted to remove the impetus for people to migrate. Remember, we talked about migration as one of the key problems for Latvian National Communists. And so their brilliant uh, scientist ideologue, Pauls de Zerve, he came up with a plan to rationalise the Latvian economy. And instead of building factories making heavy industrial goods with the raw materials brought from Russia and the workers brought from Russia and then the production sent back to Russia... Latvia would revert to its pre-Soviet specialties of light industry, wood industries, agriculture. And this, therefore, would remove the need for massive numbers of Russians to come. So, as you rightly said, this upset Moscow. This upset Moscow, yes, we can see that very clearly. So what did Moscow do? So this is where we come to the crashing conclusion in this political thriller. Um, by 1959, things were so far so good, as I said. The National Communists were in charge. But, you see, the Stalinist opposition were grouped around a man called Arvids Pelscher. 
And he was a Latvian, but he'd lived in the USSR and he was more Russian than the Latvian. And he was the ideological secretary of the Latvian party. And he tried to turn back the clock. He had surreptitiously been opposing the Latvian National Communists for a while, getting his Russian allies in the military to write letters to Moscow complaining of nationalism. You know, And uh, in the end, Moscow investigated this in a stitched-up commission sent by Pelsha's conservative allies and bosses in Moscow. So they all you know, they colluded, how can we get them out? Right, well, we'll send a commission, and the commission won't listen to them, it'll just listen to the aggrieved people. So, and Berklavs had also put his foot in it, as he tended to do, by appealing in the press specifically to Latvians to join the party, because it was dominated by Russians, as I said, and he thought, if I can stack the party with Latvian, the rank and file with Latvians, like he did the leadership, they could really make changes. But uh, this was made out to be very nationalistic, and during an otherwise pleasant visit to Latvia by Khrushchev, he was there for a state meeting with the Germans, Pelscher and others convinced him that there was nationalism afoot in Latvia. So he goes ballistic at the airport when he's about to leave to the National Communists. And from then, Pelscher took the cue to move, you see. So Khrushchev calmed down and he said, he declared later, I don't want to purge. It'll cause too much trouble. And the Latvians convinced him, don't worry, you know, we're not going to go too far. They promised they would sort it out and put things right. But Pelscher had the initiative back in Riga after Khrushchev's explosion, and he'd scared Berklav's faction into disintegrating. And this is probably one of the most crucial reasons as to why it all went wrong. For them, they fell apart. There was no united front. Something similar happened in Lithuania, but they held together, and there was no purge. But here, they fell apart. They started infighting and blaming each other and trying to keep their jobs. But Pelscher had the big friends as well in Moscow who supported him, and he organised another plenum, another meeting, and he demolished Berklav's, uh, you know, everyone, they got up again on the rostrum and hammered him, uh, This who's now pariah, and um, all Berklav's allies, even the repentant ones, were over the next three years gradually picked off and sacked and given um, silly jobs as this major purge began. And um, uh, let me be, be uh, clear about this. So in comparison to the people who were running the country, they were made like head of the road construction unit out in the sticks or manager of a bookshop uh, for someone who was the main newspaper editor. This was a bit like Joe Biden being given a, you know, hey, go and be mayor in a small town in Idaho or right. the UK chancellor. Uh, George Osborne all of a sudden being made to work in a pickle factory. You know, it was a real, real humiliating, downgrading uh, you know, a strategy. And this went on into the lower ranks of the party. We think maybe 2,000 lost their jobs. And Pelscher did indeed turn the, the clock. And everything went back to Russian control and became a repressed culture. And so if I have time to just conclude... You um, do, please. I would say that uh, ultimately the epilogue to this great history um, is that Pelscher got the top spot. He won the first secretary position. He got the old doddery guy who was playing neutral, Cal Berzinch, out uh, for failing to keep the peace. And he became the first secretary. He went on to Moscow in the end. He got a big promotion for this and became a, a real big wig um, in the end. But the whole episode, it shook Latvia. And it wasn't for nothing. The, all the policies, as I said, got reversed. But... It helped Latvians hold on to the cultural heritage. It reminded them, I think, about it and the language. And they, they were able to resist Russification quite effectively. And in the end, they became independent once again when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. And... At that time, the National Communists, elderly men by this time, 30 years later, they re-emerged from obscurity to talk about the 1950s and they became involved in the independent struggle. Uh, the legacy 
ultimate legacy of uh, this Russian migration to Latvia is that it's led to now around 700,000 Russians and Slavs, Ukrainians and Belarusians, remaining in Latvia to this day uh, out of a country of just 2 million people. And this causes ethnic tensions right up to this day. Uh, not as acute as in Ukraine, though, but, um, but, but present, shall we say. Yeah. Right. Uh, the, the Russians are occasionally making noise about protecting the rights of Russian speakers, which is the... Uh, and they're talking directly often about Latvia, yeah. Uh, which, of course, was their supposed impetus for going into the eastern part of Ukraine, which mm-hmm. is unofficially, not officially under Russian military control mm-hmm. at this precisely, moment. Precisely, precisely, yeah. This has been a fascinating and, as you put it, thrilling story. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you agree. So uh, thank you very much for sharing it with us. My pleasure. Yeah. And this has been another episode. We'll see you next time. For a transcript of this episode, alignments to the Texas and National Standards for Social Studies, and links to more information on this topic, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's 15minutehistory.org. And for even more, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. The University of Texas is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in this or any episode of 15-Minute History do not reflect the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its constituent colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.